0: Praised for her fearless performances in New York and a number of regional theaters, today's guest has already tackled such major roles as Isabella in Measure for Measure, Cressida in Troilus and Cressida, Blanche in A Streetcar Named Desire, Hedda Gabler, and Regina in The Little Foxes. She's appeared in plays by such diverse authors as Edward Albee, Carol Churchill, Ethan Cohn, Susan Laurie Parks, and Woody Allen, and most recently created the role of the alienated daughter in John Robin Bates' Other Desert Cities at Lincoln Center Theater. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very pleased to talk with Elizabeth Marvel. Welcome. Thank you. Before we start talking about the shows, I want to just take a small element of your past, which is I read in several interviews where you refer to yourself as having been a bad kid.
1: (laughs) And I want to know
0: if being a bad kid has informed your view of being
1: an actor. Interesting. Well, uh, sure. Like all of our life experience informs what we make. Um, yeah, I certainly know the territory of the, you know, the lone wolf, the the dark kid. I, I understand that world. And um, for a long time, I was drawn to a lot of those roles uh, as I've grown and grown up. Um, I think my... Worldview and my person has expanded, uh, but I definitely, um, <laughs> I definitely uh, carry a very large space in my heart for for bad kids everywhere. <laughs> well, we'll talk
0: about some of those characters, <laughs> but let's let's talk first about other desert cities. Um, I referred to the character as alienated. I'm mm. being cautious not to reveal too much about. The play, but um, I'm wondering, you know, just about being in an ensemble where you are in many ways the other person. Uh-huh. That they're sort of they've found their unit. You've been removed from it in the plot of the show, so you at once have to be part of the ensemble. Yet you are playing someone who is uncomfortable with all these people around you.
1: Right. Right. How do you how do you balance that? Well, it, it's, it's a great question actually and it's something that as the run has gone on um, has been something that I've had to keep very alive as something that I work on every show because as we perform more and more, it's very seductive. To want to ease into it and lower the stakes and play for the laughs because the audience will go with me if I lower the stakes because a lot of what Brooke says is very funny. Um, So I have to remind myself every night before coming on stage to stay vigilant. I have not been in this house in six years. I have had a nervous breakdown. I've rebuilt myself. I almost died. And those are the stakes that I have to keep alive in myself instead of lying back on the lovely, comfortable chaise and (laughs) – And And having a good time with Stocker Channing and Linda Lavin. Exactly. Although there's plenty of room to have a good time Mm -hmm. and I do have a good time. But it has to be tempered with the stakes of what must be played. To arrive at where I get to by the end of the play, I must begin with a certain amount of anxiety – Uh, fear and just basically not knowing what's coming. And that, as you say, it it is that
0: issue of how do you keep that fresh because, Mm -hmm. of course, you do know what's coming. You've already mentioned several of the issues that your character deals with. Are you one of those performers who wants even more backstory about – you know, what um, else happened with your characters?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I work in a very strange way. It's hard to describe the way I work. Um, I don't talk about it too much because it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's funny what what um, influences me when I'm making something. Like, for instance, uh, when I played Regan in King Lear, um, I uh, I was very influenced by Patty Hearst. Um, she was a huge part of what I made of Regan and Albert Speer uh, were two. Things we should that say I, Hitler's architect. Exactly. Okay. Um and it's it's really uh, hard to understand. And for and when I played Regina, Muhammad Ali was a huge part of, of what I made Regina out of. So I find and then I build sort of mosaics from there. Um you know, in the instance of Regina, the, the Ali-Fraser fight was the template for me that unlocked Regina. Because basically, you know, Ali was – Joe Fraser was so much stronger. So when he got in the ring, he was basically out-muscled. And that's when he came up with the rope-a-dope because he realized that he was not going to be able to just go in with the power and beat this man. So he had to deal with what was actually happening in front of him, lose the strategy that he planned, think on his feet, literally think on his feet. He leaned into the ropes, let him hit him round after round after round. And then when he could finally see him exhausting himself he leaned in and said is that all you got Joe and then delivered the combination that knocked him out and won the fight so that to me when because I happened to just watch When We Were Kings while we were rehearsing Little Foxes and I was really struggling and um, and I realized that's Regina that's Regina she's not a grand manipulator she just works with what's in front of her that's mm-hmm. her genius and that then opened door after door after door for me how much of that is
0: totally your decision not even discussed with the director or do you discuss
1: it um rarely hmm. rarely you know if if there's a need to but no that's just sort of my my weird <laughs> way of working well,
0: but it's very interesting because it gives you a psychological underpinning without being specific mm-hmm. to the plot right but the motivation. Can I ask, is there something specific that that you modeled or thought about for playing Brooke?
1: Uh, yes. Um, there, the the two big influences um, that helped me find Brooke. And again, it, it's very abstract how my brain works. So it's it's. Well, again, we're not expecting that you're going.
0: I mean, you didn't play like you were Muhammad Ali, right? Exactly. You know, it's just, but it's it's. The, the seeing how he handled himself in a certain situation. That's right. So, so with other desert cities. Um, with
1: other desert cities, uh, I was uh, deeply influenced by Spalding Gray. Hmm. Um, that unlocked a lot of her for me, um, and uh, of course, as because I portray a writer, um, the writer that I most read while working on the play was Joan Didion. Hmm. But I think that's also very evident that uh, Robbie was was deeply influenced by Didion as well, hmm. because there are a lot of echoes. Uh, it from "Play It As It Lays," they're the Wyeths, hmm. for instance. <laughs> Interesting, but but hmm. Spalding Gray is Spalding Spalding. How that connection happened? I am a massive Worcester Group file. They probably have the biggest influence on me as a theater artist, as a a group of theater artists. When I first came here in the nineties, that's the first place I went. And I, I was uh, fortunate enough um, to see Ron Vauder in uh, Roy Cohn, Jack Smith, which I went back to see five times. Mm. And um, he had a huge impact on me. And uh, to me, for me, Kate Valk is the great actress of my time. Mm. And, um, I, I I am just in awe of her. Anyway, uh, so, you know, Spalding worked with them for a long time. But when I started going to rehearsals at Lincoln Center, um, you have to go down into the basement <laughs> and you walk down a long hallway and they have these massive show posters. And there are all these posters of Spalding because that was his creative home for a long time. And I kept seeing him and I was like, what? What is this? What is this? And I started reading his books, his writing. I also know his personal story that he committed suicide by jumping off a ferry into freezing water, which are literally lines that I speak in the play about my brother. Hmm. Um, so there were many connections, his writing, his humor, his background, his suicide, his hmm. his psychological struggles. So with Brooke, it was actually more literal Influences between Spaulding and Joan Didion. It's less abstract in the way that I usually connect with things. But it's been really helpful in my dressing room, which I rarely do, but I have a lot of pictures of Spalding around um, mm. in my dressing room as well because the press people were able to give me that. Sure, sure. Because he was around so much.
0: Fascinating. Well, let's talk some about how you got into theater. You grew up in a very, very small town in Pennsylvania. I did. <laughs> um, presumably a very, very small town, didn't afford much opportunity to see theater. And if I read stuff correctly, you weren't a theater goer at all.
1: No. Well, uh, not really. Uh, My grandparents had an apartment in New York that they were at sometimes. So when I was little, you know – once a year, we'd come visit and I'd see a show. I remember seeing uh, Godspell when I was like five and I remember seeing Annie when I was seven or something. Um, I remember the first play my grandparents took me to see was The Seagull. Hmm. Uh which was a, a before Annie? You
0: saw the seagulls. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. I, it was. Yeah. I think so. I think actually, yes. I think it was before. And thus, a career like it. was uh, <laughs> born. Well, no, I didn't watch it and think that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't because, in many ways, I'm very inappropriately an actress. I am not a show person, as it were. I'm very nervous in front of people. I am not that comfortable on a stage. <laughs> Still. <laughs> mm Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So
0: then why on earth did why you get do you do it? it? <laughs> well, believe me,
1: I ask myself that every day. <laughs> Usually um, at about five of eight. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. No, uh, I have to say, I, I do. Um, I love collaboration. I mm. love it. I love it. And I love when I work with people who show me things that I don't know how to do. I find it fascinating. Mm. And I love. Uh, I love being in a room full of people making something together. I find it really exciting. Um, I also got to work on great texts very early. So I got uh, lured by language. Um, I've always been a voracious reader and a lover of language. And um, also there's just something in me, whether I like it or not, that has to come out.
0: So when did you embark on a career in theater or studying theater?
1: Well, it really was... I, I went to a boarding school in northern Michigan called Interlochen Arts Academy. when uh, I went there when I was 13 to study visual arts, and that's what I did. I was very into textiles and metalwork and uh, ceramics and weaving and print work, um, and that was my real passion. But... Uh, I, I was bad kid <laughs> and I got in some trouble. So when it was time for you know all of the art students to be submitting their portfolios, mine was incomplete because my dream was to go to uh, Cooper Union or RISD. That was my big goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, my portfolio was incomplete but I was not a fan of school. So I did not want to spend any more time in school completing it. Mm-hmm. So I went to London and bummed around. Um, for a few months. And while I was there, I went to the theater because it was affordable. It was cheap. And uh, I saw a production of A Touch of the Poet quite by accident. I had read I – th- I guess I had read Long Day's Journey in high school and I was very interested in Eugene O'Neill. It really spoke to me. But I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. And uh, I saw that it was a Eugene O'Neill play. I didn't know the play. Um, And it just happened to be Vanessa Regrave. And I just happened to be in the fourth row. And it was a bolt of lightning experience. I saw it and I was transfixed. And I've said this before. um, What it made me feel like is all I can compare it to is I imagine what people must have felt like when they saw Houdini for the first time. Because I watched her and it was a magic trick. I had no idea how she did what she did and it blew my mind open. <laughs> Given that I'm guessing about the timing, which role was she playing? She was playing the mother. Huh.
0: Yeah. Which is not the showiest no. of the roles. Nope. Certainly. And she
1: is the only thing I remember. Wow. She's the only thing. And what I most remember is a moment – when her husband leaves stage, because I, I later went on to do that play, playing the daughter, so I know the play quite well, um, with Dervilla Malloy playing my mother, who is mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, but her husband had just left. who's very abusive to her. And she, she, she just stood there. Wasn't, she wasn't like in bright light or very dim light. And she brushed her hair across her face, and it was like watching ripples on a lake. You saw a whole lifetime pass across her face and I had never seen anything like that. I would never seen anything like that.
0: And in that moment, did you say, I can do that, I want to do that, I want to learn how to do that? Yeah. Which yeah. one, all
1: yeah. of uh, the uh, above? Uh, I, uh, I, I, I can't tell you because it was a long time ago, but I do remember a great, uh, hungry animal loosed in myself at that moment, something that I didn't even know had an appetite in me Hmm. came forth. And so
0: how did you pursue that? Because you hadn't been doing like high school plays, had you?
1: Yes, I had done one play in high school uh, poorly Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I was a – It's high school. Exactly. When when I was a freshman, I did a play um, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the theater people. <laughs> I didn't – they all sang and were really loud. Your and career choices nervous. are just coming so clear
0: to me. <laughs> so, so you didn't uh, like the theater people. No, you, it was you all know. very
1: nerve-wracking to <laughs> me. So so um, I didn't pursue that. But uh, anyway, while I was in London and this – I had this experience. I had known about Juilliard because the boarding school I went to was a feeder school to Juilliard with the music and dance program. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was the only conservatory in America, which meant there were no academics. So I wanted to learn about acting, but I didn't want to have to take any other classes. So I applied to Juilliard. It was the only school I applied to. But surely you had to audition. I did. I flew back. And, and so I auditioned. How did you prepare? I mean, uh, poorly. I didn't – I was supposed to – very poorly. I was I, – I I prepared two completely inappropriate pieces. They almost didn't permit me to audition because I didn't prepare a Shakespeare. Uh, I didn't know any <laughs> and I just – I didn't even know where to begin. So I just didn't. And um, – and oh, God. It was um, – it was – one of my pieces was – Eugene O'Neill, I can't think of the play, the one that's impossible where they all speak their subtext, the one that nobody does. Uh, I can't think of it right now. Anyway, uh, this speech about God Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's totally obscure, I did. And then I I think I did Gwendolyn from The Importance of Being Earnest. But you got in. I did. (laughs) I did. So at that
0: point, You've decided to throw in your lot with the theater people. Yeah. I mean because you you talked about that you love collaboration. But right. you probably didn't even understand the collaborative nature of theater when I you got nothing. into it. You can say it nothing. now. So, Total tabla rasa. So what? what was the experience of then being trained and even – as you say, it's a conservatory. Mm-hmm. It, you may not have had to take – math or foreign language or anything else but there's an awful lot you have to learn if you're going through the program at Juilliard. That's right.
1: You know, honestly, I think it was great because because I was so unformed and so curious and uh, so willing hmm. that it was great. I had a great time at Juilliard. I was interested in everything, and everything was new. And, a lot, you know, Juilliard is a lot like the Marines, that they break you down. Whatever habits you have formed, they break you down. I had nothing. So there was no breaking down. (laughs) But you had – I mean, I have to say, and maybe maybe the Marines was exactly the right
0: metaphor. If you were a bad kid, if you were a rebellious kid, if you didn't like things, Uh
1: did you need to be broken down? uh, Well, I didn't need to be broken down. I needed to uh, be contained. I needed a container. I needed – Boundaries. Juilliard was great for that. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) They provided all of that in a very clear way. And they uh, also really encouraged me. And my creativity um, was boundless and encouraged. Mm. And so I thrived. I loved it. And you found a real mentor there. I did. I did. And I was – Michael Langham took me under his wing um, my third year. My Mm. third year, he was the head of the program, but he really remains aloof or did the first and second year. He was around, but you didn't have a lot of contact with him. But then in the third year, he sort of plucked me from my class and we would – meet once a week in his office and work on text on Shakespeare together. And I should explain for
0: those who don't know Michael, who sadly passed away recently, that Michael was at one time the artistic director of the Stratford Festival in Canada, at what time the artistic director of the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, a major figure in classical theater, both here in Canada and even worked in his, in his home in england
1: that's right that's so right. so that's quite a mentor oh to get. it's like having milton as your mentor you know he, the man, he had universes in his mind he was just a phenomena and the other interesting thing I, I think it's so helpful to know about michael is that the first place he directed was in a concentration camp that's where he began as a director so he literally created theater to live to literally stay alive so that, that's sort of what he was forged on and that, that really formed him as an artist. Hmm. Was that sense of
0: urgency about theater something that he passed along to you? Yes,
1: yes, yes. I, I, oh gosh, I, I am so lucky and I, I, the good news is I really know how lucky I am that I began with Michael Langham and Garland Wright. Those were two people that got their hands on me really fast.
0: Garland was running the Guthrie.
1: That's right, yeah. which is one of the first theaters I worked at when I got out of school. And both of them really instilled – I mean Michael sat me down my fourth year and said, you know, you have a choice. And there's – he was not critical or trying to sway me, but he just really laid it out for me saying, if you want to be a theater artist, an artist on the stage – When you finish with this program, you have to spend your first five years on stage uninterrupted, and that's just what it takes. Mm -hmm. After a conservatory program, you have to just work and learn to incorporate all of this technique that has been crammed into you. You just need to work so you can begin to have a little bit of ease, or you don't, but you will not really be a theater artist. It's
0: very easy for someone to say you must work. It's another thing to get the work. And well, when you got true. out of Juilliard, you in your first year out of Juilliard had roles at Stratford, at the Guthrie, at ART.
1: Yeah. Extraordinary. Talk about those first well, shows. For for one thing, the first one was with Michael. So he created that opportunity when I when I told him that I – and I think that was – he didn't tell me about that job at that time but I think that was part of the reason why we were having the conversation is he wanted to see how serious I was about making a commitment to the theater or was I going to graduate and go to LA which is a completely valid and great thing to do. But um, I – was very curious and interested in staying on stage and learning and working. So then he brought me to Stratford to do Measure for Measure with Brian Bedford and Colm Fjord, which was mind-blowing <laughs> and awesome and fantastic. And then shortly thereafter, I got to go to the Guthrie and do As You Like It with Garland Wright, which was another one of the great you know theater experiences of my life. And both of them – I remember Garland giving an opening night speech to the company and he said, you know, I need to tell you that I get very frustrated when people say about the theater, well, it's not brain surgery. We're just doing theater. We're just making a play because he said, you know, I am intelligent enough. I could have been a brain surgeon if I wanted to. I actually chose to use my mind and my soul to make theater. But it is that serious and it means that much. And I mean, I know I'm sounding very heady today and very serious, and I actually have a lot of fun doing what I do, but to do it this day and age, it's very hard because doing theater, the hours are impossible. Making it in New York, we do not make enough in the theater to make a decent living. It's a huge sacrifice to live a life in the theater. It's a massive sacrifice. So you have to have a deep, deep love of it. So
0: you did two shows at the Got Three. I did. I you did. I did, did The did, Rover with and,
1: Joanne Acolytis and Vi Davis and oh, a lot of really fun people. And then also
0: went to Boston. That's where you did Touch of the Poet. That's right. And What the Butler Saw, yeah. And that was presumably – was that Bob Brustein still running ART at that point? He was, point? Yeah, yeah.
1: And it was Joe Dowling who did the Touch of the Poet. Oh,
0: Boy, the, the Guthrie connections just keep coming I know, back. I know. It's true. <laughs> so – and you said what the butler saw. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Interesting. So all in your first year, did you consciously then say – or had you already moved to New York and then kept getting shows out of town or – Yeah.
1: I just went wherever the work yeah, took me. because you've been at Juilliard. That's so. right.
0: That's right. But then it seems that thereafter, with a few exceptions that I found, you've worked – Almost entirely in New York. Yeah, I've just been here. Yep. So, what would you say was your big break in New York? That first, I'm still waiting. Well, it seems. In, I mean, you understudied in Seagull and uh-huh. understudied Saint Joan and That's took right. over in Seagull, in Seagull. You said, "Yeah, that was my um, first
1: Broadway job."
0: And that was was that the National Actors Theater. That was
1: National Actors Theater, and that was my second year out of school, I think.
0: Right. And Michael was involved there. Michael Langham as yep. well. So, yep. So he, he directed Saint mentor Joan, mentor and Fairy Godfather. That's right. All in one. <laughs> That's right. Which is which is good. But then New York Shakespeare Festival, you did a play called Silence, Cunning, and Exile. Yes. In which … which you were playing essentially Diane Arbus. Yes, I was. So That's right. that was your real – here I am. It was a new play. That's right. So you're creating a role, mm-hmm. presumably your first opportunity to do that yeah. in a new work. What was that like? Because so much of what we've talked about so far has been – I mean we talked about the new play, Other Desert Cities. But the early work was all classics. yes.
1: Yes. You know, for me, there's no real difference in a classic text, a new text. It's just I do the same kind of work, really. I do the same warm-up no matter what I'm playing. I do, you know, the same research no matter what I'm playing. Uh, that one was really interesting because being in the city, and Mark Wing Davey directed it, and he's a huge research freak which is awesome and the kind of research he encourages his actors to do is really thrilling like at one point on stage we had to develop Dennis O'Hare played my husband in the play and we had to develop a photograph at the beginning of the play we would take a photograph of the audience and during a scene we got permission by the fire department to black out the theater and we developed the photograph during the scene Hmm. and at the end would hang it and it was quite beautiful but there were so many people that I had access to who knew her and worked with her. I spent several weeks with Bruce Weber picking his brain. Mm-hmm. I got to go into the photography archives at Nikon and see her old proof sheets. I got to kick around Westbeth. You know, it was really awesome. It was awesome. But, um, her family, uh, was not happy with the play, and now that I have distance from it and I can look back on it, because for me, I just wanted to do it. I didn't care. But now I see, I completely understand why they were not pleased with the play, because it was a very sensationalized account of her life. And it's fascinating because there have been more than one of those, right? you know, That's in her right. case. Well, she's like the, you know, uh, her life has been made into this sort of Sylvia Plath phenomena of someone, a woman who was shockingly prolific extraordinary extraordinary artist and it's been minimized by this sort of fable about her tragedy
0: but also when people have tried to portray her they all seem to want to find out or portray something in her life that drove her to create some of her more remarkable work which was offbeat Right. And and right. not you know not at all conventional. Right. And so, what made that happen? That's what they always want to get mm-hmm. at. So mm-hmm. it's never it's never biography. It's it's that's a right. conflation of her work with her life. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So interesting. Yeah, um, you did uh, several Shakespeare's. Uh-huh. In fairly short order at the New York Shakespeare Festival. I did. Uh, Cressida in Troilus and Cressida, uh, Regan in um, King Lear that you've already mentioned, uh, Catherine in Henry Fifth. Yeah. Presumably there had been plenty of Shakespeare at Juilliard. Uh-huh. So you'd gotten familiar. Were you drawn to Shakespeare or was it just oh, the jobs you got?
1: Well, you know, honestly, it, <laughs> there's never been a master plan, and I don't sit waiting for the job that I want. I, it whatever presents itself is usually what I what I do. Now I am beginning to be at a place in my life where I do wait and choose, but but that's new. Um, certainly, at that point in my career, it was whatever was in front of me, whatever was coming, and I was really. Really fortunate to be hitting the scene at a time where you didn't have to be a movie star to play Leeds in Central Park. Hmm. It was great. It was great that they would go with, you know, a young actor with a classical background and let them chew on the big parts because that's how you get better. You know, I, I look at these young people. Coming out of these training programs and A, they're so in debt because of how much they cost and how much, you know, the cost of living is – I mean when I was starting in college here – I mean it, don't get me wrong. It was ridiculously expensive. It, it's always but, proportionally expensive. It, that's right. But. That's right. But, you know, you could find an apartment in the Village Voice. That's how you did and you just cobbled it together and you all made, you know, chili for the week and ate it. <laughs> and that's how you got through. It's a very different scene now. Um, but I also see that a lot of these actresses and actors don't have the shots at the big roles like I did. Hmm. And I I was really really fortunate. Interesting. Um, I'm curious
0: about the year of 1997 only because you did two plays. What happened then? They I were don't both two <laughs> plays. I'll tell you what happened. I'm I I just love the fact, and, and they may not have been quite adjacent, but in that year. You did American Daughter by Wendy Bosserstein uh-huh. uh-huh. and Shopping and Fucking by Mark Gravenhill. Uh-huh. Um, two <laughs> and there's my career relatively <laughs> dielectrically opposed <laughs> authors. I- I'm just curious about you know going back and forth between kind of the the sensationalism cheapens the idea of what Mark is, but he certainly mm-hmm. doesn't pull any punches. Mm-hmm. And Wendy, although I think she probed much deeper than people realized Mm. was always seen as much more of a commercial playwright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you traveling between two worlds?
1: Yes. Yes. It's very similar to the experience that I've had this year because I just did Little Foxes with Ivo Van Hova, who is someone I collaborate with a lot, Um, and then doing this John Robbie Bates play at Lincoln Center um, with Joe Montello. It's sort of the same phenomena of going – from an extremely downtown, uh, unique, (laughs) tough, tough landscape to a much more uh, genteel commercial environment. Um, But both of them have beating hearts and, you know, palpable blood in their veins and are visceral experiences and important stories. So, um, you know... Was it – I think it was Hart Crane who said in the heart of another human being, we are never in strange territory. So (laughs) Hmm. there you go. You
0: you mentioned the downtown thing. Uh, There was a reference to you in uh, the New York Times uh, last year as a downtown superstar (laughs) of offbeat theater. Um, (laughs) Do you – I mean, it was meant in the most complimentary way. Uh But does that pigeonhole you?
1: No, no. It's none of my business what people say about (laughs) me, really. Um, But, uh, I mean, maybe to the person writing it, it does. But But you refer to yourself as as doing downtown work. I mean,
0: isn't ultimately the process the same? It just depends on who's directing? That's right.
1: That's right. And I just go where – there are people that I want to make things with, wherever it is. Um, you know, I do movies, I do TV, I do strange experimental pieces, I do extremely commercial Broadway hits. You know, I just go wherever something is interesting. It doesn't matter what the address is. <laughs> well, you've mentioned
0: Eva von Hove, uh-huh. and you know we have to talk about that. I mean, the plays themselves, for the most part, have been plays that we all know, Streetcar Named Desire, um, Hedda Gabler, um, Little Foxes. You also did uh, Susan Tontag play yes. for him. But but you're taking these classics, but they are at least visually deconstructed mm-hmm. in terms of they are not naturalistic or representational right. in the way that we think of those works. Right. So So – what do you think
1: drew him to you, and what draws you back to him? I can't tell you what draws him to me. You'd have to ask him. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Except that one thing. I, I tend to collaborate with people a lot, repeatedly, um, often. That's my history. Uh, James McDonald. Um, Mark Wing Davey, John Guare, Craig Lucas, Ivo Van Hove. Uh, There are a lot of people that I work with repeatedly. Um, And uh, a lot of – I think the reason – again, I I don't want to speak for anybody. But something that I've heard is that uh, I'm a person that always says yes while I'm working. I always say yes. I never say no. I I see no point in ever saying no because who am I to say something won't work? I'm willing to try anything anything. And if it's, you know, horrible, we're all intelligent people, we'll notice that it's horrible. <laughs> but is that true?
0: Have you ever been in a situation where you've tried something and you've felt it's horrible and the director loves
1: it? Sure. And then what happens? It's their prerogative. They're the director. Hmm. I'm I'm definitely, and I have said this, I am a director's actor and I'm also a playwright's actor. I am there to serve the writer. I am there to speak their words i'm not there to make their words work for me by adjusting things i am there to speak their words and i take that very seriously Hmm. and i also if i am going to work with the director i am there to serve the director's vision and i believe that very strongly as well um and i take that very seriously and if i can't then i quit the job Hmm. Um, which is totally fine and understandable. And the great thing is there's like 50 super talented women right behind me waiting to step right in. So I never feel any uh, problem with having to step away from a job if I can't um, responsibly do my job or respectfully. But with these plays
0: with Von Hova, it seems like – You will do anything. I I mean, You know, (laughs) to play Blanche Dubois naked in a bathtub on stage, (laughs) to play Hedda Gabbler with having someone pour tomato juice into your mouth and having it dribbling down the front of what you're wearing. I mean this is – I mean you are pretty – open. Well, it's funny.
1: I I find it so... This is something I find very interesting with the work I do with Evo. People often talk about the the nudity and the tomato juice, and they don't talk about the, the violence. To me, nudity, having... Tomato juice spit in my mouth. Eh. But the fact that I was slammed against a wall, people rarely mention. (laughs) It's the tomato juice that people so – I find it fascinating just because I've never seen the work. Mm -hmm. I'm just inside of it. So I have no idea. And people have often said that moment is seared into my mind. It was so – abusive and horrific and i was like really all i did was have he just spat a little tomato juice in my mouth it's so interesting to me that that's the thing whereas earlier in the scene when he slams me against the wall that did not have that effect on people which i find very interesting but
0: is it possible i mean it's a terrible thing to say I mean, I hope that people aren't inured to violence, but, but I, they have no, seen
1: I, violence. Yes. They have not seen those moments. I think you're exactly right, and that's what's so curious to me. It's so interesting. I think that's exactly right. It's so fascinating. Um, but with with Ivo, for me, I can say uh, the thing that draws me back to him um, always is that he – always shows me things that I didn't know I could do. Hmm. Uh, I had no idea. Um, he, The way we work is that everyone has to be off book day one. You go in with the full text memorized and you just get up and you work. You just work. And for me, uh, I don't find him – Deconstructionist. I can see why you say that about the design and I think that's absolutely right on. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as his approach to the text, it's actually – he is so obsessively text-based. Hmm. He. But the the beautiful thing about Evo is like he knew of Lillian Hellman but he had never read any of her plays. He had never seen any of them. They don't really live in Europe the way they do in America. And even here, they're not that commonly that's seen. That's right, which is shocking because they should be because they play like a house on fire. They're fantastic so when he for example I I was actually the reason why we did Little Foxes I brought it to him and felt very passionate about doing it now I felt like it was a a play that needed to be done now very much and he read it so for him it's a brand new play it's a brand new text there's no baggage he doesn't hear southern accents he doesn't have any of that laying on it so when, when we did a reading of it um I said, I, I don't want any Southern accents. I want us to just drop it and just read the words. Mm-hmm. And hearing that play read that way without a big helping of Southern syrup all over it is shocking. Just the brutality of that language is shocking. And it was really exciting. And I think that's that's part of what was so thrilling about the production.
0: It's interesting that you said you're there to serve the playwright. You're there to serve the director. But you just said you brought the play <laughs> yes. to him. So, <laughs> in that so is it – are there plays that you say, I want to do yes. these roles and you want – once you're in it, you give yourself over. That's exactly But say, right.
1: I want to do this. That's exactly are right. Are there others that you're looking to do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really want to do Moon for Misbegotten very much, very, very, very much. Um, I want to play Hamlet. Very much, um, uh, you know. There, those are the two that are sort of in my mind right now, hmm. strongly. But, but you know, uh, we'll see which way the wind blows. <laughs> do you know
0: of directors you want to do those with?
1: Yes. Well, I don't know if I want to do those plays with them, but I very, very much want to work with Robert Woodruff. Very, very much. Mm-hmm. And then you know, I always look forward to working with Evo again, and I'm also interested in uh, meeting some new people hmm. to work with because I've been collaborating with the same people for a while now, which I love. But I'm also curious to have a new experience. I don't want to
0: pry too deeply because we, we try <laughs> to keep this <laughs> professional. Um,
1: but you have acted
0: a number of times with your husband, um, I have. Y- who you met back at Julia. I do. I'm going to only ask about one of the shows that you did with him. But I'm really curious about a married couple playing the Macbeths.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What was that
0: experience like? It was
1: challenging. It was great. It was thrilling. We got to a level of communication on stage that you can only achieve having the kind of intimacy – that we have, which mm. was really exciting. But it was also a long time ago. Um, you, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was about 99, yeah. I think. So where, we, were, yeah. we were much younger and didn't know each other. I mean, I would be very interested in going back now. Actually, uh, Bill and I and Martha Clark have been working on that play. Hmm. Um, so we may revisit it together at some point. Um, uh,
0: we didn't – I don't believe I said your husband's full name, Bill, Bill Camp. Camp yeah. um, when you say that you and Bill and Martha Clark have been working on this play, is this a case of when you've got time, you get together and spend a few hours?
1: Uh, well, yeah. We got the Shakespeare Society to uh, give us a workshop mm-hmm. where they they we gathered a group of actors and the New York Theatre Workshop gave us the space. And we were able to work on the text for a week. Oh, okay. Uh, which was fantastic. Um, and next we were looking, uh, hopefully... The public is going to give us a movement workshop of a week or two weeks to sort of create a physical language, hmm. um, be- because Martha, you know, is a is a choreographer. Yeah. I mean, I'm
0: sort of fascinated because <laughs> her work is not always as heavily text based yeah. as a Shakespeare. Would, that's well, be. she
1: she has done Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's another play I want to do, <laughs> by the way. Who uh, do you want to play since you've well, already, I, you already – it seems what? like you can go anywhere. I can you know. and I do and I want to but I, I am drawn to Titania very, okay. very much. I do. But if I – If you I, told me you wanted to play Bottom, I'd say, OK, I'd see that. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So with the
0: Macbeth why go back to it is it that you didn't feel the production 12 years ago got where you wanted it to get to or is it just fascination with the work
1: it's well you know i mean you get you get vertigo with shakespeare it's just bottomless it just keeps going there's no end to it it's it's incredible you never stop working on a shakespearean text ever ever mm-hmm. you can work on a piece of text for – there's a Baroon speech that Michael had me learn at Juilliard that he had a lot of us learn um, that I do regularly as a warm-up. I've done that speech thousands of times and I never – and it's one speech Mm. and I'm constantly finding new things, constantly Mm. and that's one piece of text. So a whole play, my god. Um, I think that that would be an awesome thing to be able to revisit any Shakespeare multiple times. That that is something that really interests me.
0: Hmm. Now we've been talking about all of these great works of the theater, <laughs> all of these directors that that you give yourself over to, the playwrights that you give yourself over to. Woody Allen.
1: <laughs>
0: uh huh. You did a new play of his at The Atlantic uh, now uh, about six years ago Um, and it's interesting because I've read a lot about his style as a film director and Mm. read so much about how little direction he gives Mm -hmm. on his films. What was your experience working on a new play by him, directed by him?
1: Mm-hmm. It was funny. Um, I was doing uh, Head of Gabler while I started rehearsing with him, and my voice was going. So <laughs> the first, like, two and a half weeks of a four-week rehearsal process, I couldn't speak in rehearsal. So I would literally walk around. He's, staging is huge for him because he's very visual. And I would physically be there, but the stage manager would read my (laughs) lines. so he literally really had no idea what my performance was going to be. So there was
0: ventriloquism during rehearsal. There really
1: was. There really was. Uh, (laughs) And it was very – and he had no problem with it. He had no problem. He was great. Um, I had a wonderful time with Woody. He definitely – me and Michael McKeon, who was also in that show, he became a dear friend during that experience. And the two of us had a ball. And Woody really let us, you know – do what we... He cast us for a reason. He liked what we brought. He encouraged that more and more. And yeah, he would tweak here and there. Um, A lot of it was physical. A lot of it was staging. But he had very astute direction but very minimal. It was definitely the bulk of the work was in my hands. And he was... Very pleased, and it's a thrilling experience to please Woody Allen. I can only imagine. <laughs> and it was awesome I just because, want to meet him. I can't imagine I know, working with It was with so him. cool. It was so cool. The coolest thing – the thing that I love so much is I get to the theater very early before every show, and he would often – he would come constantly. He was so great about coming to the show, and uh, – He would get there and sit backstage and he – and Michael would often be there because Michael would sit and play his guitar and sing and, you know, who wouldn't want to hang out at the theater. And Woody would just tell these unbelievable stories of like his days playing the, you know, Greenwich Village circuit with Lenny Bruce and just unbelievable – just incredible. And such a deeply generous individual. Like – shockingly generous individual. And I don't mean monetarily. I mean just with his person and his time and his creativity and his knowledge. He's a he's a great guy. Hmm. You've also worked with Ethan
0: Cohn, better yeah, known great for guy. film work. Uh-huh. So At that point, I mean, was – I'm trying to remember if almost an evening, was that the first time he wrote for the stage? That's right. Or at least got produced for the stage. Yeah, yeah. I think think it was the first time he wrote for the stage too. So what – was there, again, a slightly different experience because the author didn't have the experience, the training that Uh – and came from a different medium in which they were hugely successful.
1: right. Right. Yeah, it was different. Well, also, uh, Ethan wasn't directing. Neil was directing, although Ethan was present through the entire process. Um, And I had just worked with he and Joel on uh, Burn After Reading. I would just done their movie. So I had worked with him in that context of writer, director. Um, So we were familiar with each other, which was great. And we had a shorthand to work with, which was great and uh ethan was very very humble very very willing to learn and wanting to learn and but also you know he, it's not he wasn't the new kid on the block he certainly knew what he was doing he just hadn't been in this specific context mm-hmm. but it was he's he's a he's an amazing amazing human being
0: I jumped over a few things and I have to say you've done so much work that inevitably we're, we're missing things <laughs> here. Um, but I want to ask you about doing Seascape, which oh. was its first Broadway revival and you played the female lizard. I did. Um, when we talk about bravery and <laughs> unusual <laughs> roles, you know, covered in scales <laughs> with a very long tail. Um <sighs> What what was it like to play a lizard?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you, It it's so that – that is such a special experience to me because my first week of rehearsal, I found out I was pregnant with my son. And I went to Mark Lemos, who was my director on that show, who I had never had the good fortune to work with before but was so happy to have that experience with him. And I told him – because it was a 20-foot rake – that we had to climb on. Right. Basically, it was basically a sand dune. A sand dune. And we had to be in a push-up position to crawl for two hours. And then there was also a part – there were several parts where we had to pop up over the top of it and then jump off and land on a big pad behind yeah. it. And I told him I, I didn't know I was pregnant when I took the job. I had no idea. But I was very concerned that I would not be able as the months went on to deal with the job and uh, he assured me that he would accommodate whatever I needed to accommodate. Hmm. So I had the great experience of doing that play while having this huge experience in my personal life. And Franny, who has – Franny gosh, Sternhagen. I'm not sure how many children she has. I want to say like ten, but I'm probably exaggerating. <laughs> it might be more like seven or eight. I, I feel ashamed that I don't remember, but I don't. But she was the greatest resource for me to have as an actress and a mother to talk to. And what they did was they had to build – because I had very intense morning sickness. So there were these big rocks on stage and they built a sandbox for me. So I would waddle over there in my lizard costume and throw up and waddle back and continue on with the scene. (laughs) And fortunately, George (laughs) George Kazar just had a good sense of humor about it. Thank God. So we just
0: plowed on. But it is fascinating because that play is about understanding bonds. That's and right. Comparing human bonds to what happens in the world of the lizard. Yeah. And ultimately what it is to be a parent and, and all of that. Yes. So to play
1: that. And so that's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And whenever I see Edward Albee, he always says, how's, how's the little lizard?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if your child has to have an unsavory nickname, at least it's from Edward Albee. That's right. So, so that's you, right. you can't complain. Um, another show that really knocked me out because I'd not had a chance to see it before um, was Top Girls. Oh, yeah. Great. Now, it's a play that seems to confound some audience members mm-hmm. and I actually saw your production twice and both times within 15 minutes of the first act, there's people murmuring, oh, yeah. what's <laughs> going on here? What is this about? Who are these people? What What is it? So – I'm wondering, as we talked about the difference between downtown and uptown and while mm-hmm. Manhattan Theater Club is not for profit, it's on Broadway. Right. And it's a very challenging play for audiences. Yes.
1: Was it challenging to play that play? Yes. For audiences? Yes, it was. It was tough. It was really, really tough. Um, we had a lot of resistance from the audience. Uh, But the good thing is by the time we got to the third act, the diehards were there. (laughs) The people who really wanted to be there were there. So, you know, it it was just – the good thing is, is I've done enough tough material to know that when people leave, it's fine. You don't take it personally. It's fine. Some people want to stay. Some people don't and that's okay. You have to make what you're making and it's not your business. It's just not your business. Hmm. So I, I'm really secure in that. Do you think many actors feel that?
0: Way? I I I don't know. I mean, even just your other members of that cast. Was it h- hard girls? for others in Top yeah, Girls? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough because it's you know when you say a line and suddenly two people get up here and two yep. people get up over there and grab their coats and go. Yep. Um, it can't be easy to keep working because I always not, hear actors say, we know everything that happens in the house. You do. Getting up and leaving, you sure oh, know you,
1: about. You know, it, it's intense. The, the sensitivity that an actor has while performing is extraordinary. It's like I I, say, I have like bat hearing. I hear everything, everything. Mm. So yes, I'm extreme. But again, like when we did Streetcar, people would storm out. People would yell at us. We had very intense – Responses to to that production in particular, so I I was uh, I I was quite schooled in this phenomena, mm-hmm. um, so it, it didn't it didn't throw me. Uh, it's hard because it's so much work. It's such a big piece. So to to keep coming back night after night and saying, all right, I'm going to just go to work. I'm going to go to work um, can be challenging. Uh, but also very exciting. It's Hmm. very exciting not preaching to the choir, doing the kind of work that you're not just adored. Mm -hmm. And I'm often a person that, (laughs) that gets those jobs, that does those jobs. It's something that's been really fun on other desert cities is to have people laughing so much and Hmm. having fun. Although it's a tough part, there's a lot of fun there and a lot of, you know, pleasure. You talked about the
0: violence earlier in one of the, the Von plays you did with him. So I have to ask you about 50 Words, mm-hmm. the Michael Weller play that you did and just you and Norbert Leo Butz, yeah. um, which if I remember correctly, previews were delayed because yes. you both injured yourself in the course of doing <laughs> that play. And indeed, there's a play where the violence was commented upon. yes. We know there are fight directors. We know there are ways that you work on stage violence. Mm -hmm. What was the experience of being that physical in that play, that raw, that exposed with one other actor? How do you go back and do that night after night?
1: You just do. (laughs) You just do. It was thrilling. Norbert's fantastic. I got lucky. I didn't know him. He didn't know me we got in the room and we sniffed around each other and realized we were going to be just fine. We were going to be great. And mm. it was a great experience. Yeah, it was rough. A lot. Of, I've also had that. I've done a lot of plays where I've... where it's been really physically rough. Um, mm. It doesn't frighten me. I have no problem with it at all. E- Evo doesn't use fight directors. He doesn't believe in them. So it's all actual violence that you see. Wow. So when I... Uh, in Little Foxes, I bled a lot because my I kept falling on the same place in my knee, and it kept reopening. It didn't hurt; it was like scraping your knee. It was no big deal, but you know, audiences would see that and were shocked that there was an actor bleeding. <laughs> on well, it, stage. there's one
0: thing with you know gouts of stage uh, blood that's obviously being right. pumped from somewhere. Right, it's. It, Actual blood.
1: Yeah. I, as I remember small once as it could be. Yeah. Doing Head of Gabbler because it was an all-white set and there was an all-white sofa and all I wore was a little pink satin slip. And one night I was flipping out on the sofa and I smashed my hand because I was so angry and it my finger slid open. And i c I didn't realize it and I kept hitting it. And then I finally looked up and I could hear the audience gasping. I was like, What okay, I'm really going for it, but big deal, you know. And I looked up and the Sofa was covered in blood. I had Mm. splattered my blood all over this white sofa. But it was very exciting for them. (laughs) So theater can be a blood sport sometimes. Well,
0: and on that note, as someone who has bled for her art, uh, (laughs) now in other desert cities and I understand again in the fall, we hope that we'll we'll see more of it. Um, Elizabeth Marvel, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember, we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.